What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Good afternoon, my conscious co-creators. Welcome to another edition of the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. I am very, very pleased that you are all here with me today. I've got another fascinating author in store for you today. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, But first, of course, I have the little section from my book, Everyday Awakening, Uh, And so let me get into that, and then I'll introduce my guest in just a moment. So from Everyday Awakening, standing up for the right thing can feel lonely until we see the impact. Sometimes when we stand up for what we believe in, we get knocked down. We get stabbed in the back for having a conscience. We get ridiculed for opening our mouth and speaking our truth. And it feels like the entire world is turning against us. Society doesn't like when we rock the boat, especially when we have a higher standards than most. The crowd doesn't appreciate it when we call out one of their own. It can feel very lonely to take a stand. Yet we do it anyway. We do it because in our heart, we know it is the right thing to do. We don't do it to be popular. We don't do it to win favors. We do it because we have to, because of who we are, even if it appears no one appreciates us. We can't hold our tongue. We feel we must speak up and say what we see. It can feel discouraging to be the only one to make a stand. The response can make us feel like we should not have cared so much. And we may start to question whether we should have spoken up at all. Perhaps it would have been better to keep quiet, to just go along and not make a fuss. Yet we know inside that we took the proper course of action. Even though outside it feels so painful, that is, until someone comes to us and thanks us for speaking up, saying they felt the same way, admitting they didn't have the courage to come forward on their own. We may begin to learn that our stand for what is right has affected far more people than we imagined. 
that the response we have seen so far is just the tip of the iceberg. So even though many people may not appreciate what we did, there may be many who do. Perhaps for a brief moment, we can smile again and be encouraged to continue. And perhaps we can find a little bit of peace knowing we've helped someone we've never even met. So where can you stand up for something you feel is right and just? How can you be a beacon to those around you for a better way to live and treat others? So this section of my book, I wrote this blog a a long time ago. And it was after um, I found out that that um, somebody in 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 the community had been doing something that really wasn't such a good thing, and it was because everyone thought this guy was such a good guy and uh, he was so great and helped people and this and that that his indiscretions were kind of brushed to the side until someone finally had a chance to speak up and say what had happened. And then all of a sudden, all these other people came forward. Oh, yeah, he did that to me too. Oh, yeah, he did that to me too. And suddenly, before you know it, there were all these people who were like, oh, my God. And and suddenly we realized this person was not who he had seemed to be. And that what had uh, been going on sort of in the shadows finally had come to light. And, you know, I was just thinking about that that first person who said something, how unpopular they were, how uh, uh, people were, were saying, oh, they're just making trouble. Oh, they're crazy, they're making all these excuses. But in the truth, they were actually actually standing up for what they knew was right. And so it, it just gave me a pause for a moment to reflect on how often in society in general, like how many people have to stand up and say what is in their hearts, even when it's not popular and, and, and be the source of ridicule and and be the source of, of, of people's anger, but they still have stand their ground. And I think those people are very special people and people who deserve our support and people who deserve to be uh, considered and listened to and paid attention to doesn't mean they're always right. Doesn't mean, you know, that, that they always do things in the best way, but still standing up and going against the crowd, it's never an easy thing. So um, this is just, I guess, my little tribute to those people who, 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 who do that. And then, just that kind of realization that when we do it, it can feel very lonely when you're in that position until someone comes forward and says, thank you. And then another, and then another, there's this video and I forget the name of the video that someone showed me years ago about how you start a movement. And it starts with one crazy person standing up and dancing and all these other people around just looking at him. And then another person gets up and then another, and then another, and then another. And then before too long, it's a whole bunch of crazy people dancing. So um, I think this is a big lesson for all of us and a big lesson for life. And actually, I think this is a rather apropos uh, section of my book uh, for my guest 
who uh, explores a topic that not everybody takes so seriously. So let me please welcome to the show author, researcher, and explorer Marco Vigado. Marco is an Italian-born author, researcher, and explorer who has dedicated the last 15 years to uncovering the truth about the origins of civilization. Educated at Harvard and Milan's uh, Bocconi University, he now lives in Mexico City. He is the author of the book, The Empires of Atlantis, um, published by Inner Traditions, and a big shout out to Inner Traditions. They've sent me some wonderful, wonderful authors. And has uh, numerous appearances on documentaries, podcasts, TV shows, and is an expert in ancient Mesoamerica and the worldwide megalithic phenomena. In 2020, he founded the ARX Project with the objective of uncovering more evidence of what he believes was once a global seafaring culture that vanished at the end of the last ice age. Welcome to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Marco. Hello, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here with you on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to have you. You know, Atlantis is one of those topics. I'm sure I've touched upon it over the years on my show, years past, but I I definitely haven't talked about it lately. And I'm just curious, what what is it about Atlantis that like kind of started you on this path that captured your imagination that that 15 years ago kind of made you say, you know what, I I really want to understand this better. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's been the realization that the paradigm of history that we have all been taught uh, is, uh, is fundamentally wrong, or at least it's mm-hmm. missing a fundamental episode of uh, civilization. When you look at uh, um, some of these uh, incredible ancient uh, megalithic sites uh, around the world, uh, what they show is that uh, uh, there was, or at least like the possibility, there has been uh, an advanced ancient civilization on Earth before our own, and that civilization identified with uh, that of Plato's Atlantis. Yes, yes. I, you know, I saw a long time ago this video on YouTube um, called Everything You Know Is Wrong. And, and the gentleman, he kind of went through a whole lot of different things, but really trying to shake up people's idea of history. And, and over the years, and I've had on, um, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Sam Osmanagic, who found, who found the pyramids yes. in Bosnia. Yes, with the Bosnian pyramids, of course. Yes. And, and, and I had him, I, I just had him recently back on my show, but I had had him on my show many, many years ago. A friend of mine introduced me to him. And, and the more I kind of look at things and the more you research stuff, the more you realize that like civilization is not five, 6,000 years old, that it is actually much, much older than that. And, and yet somehow we're kind of fed this story and, and most people just kind of believe, oh, you know, civilization is a rather recent phenomena. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've all been told uh, that civilization started at Sumer. So that's uh, the earliest uh, historical civilizations were those of Sumer and Mesopotamia. But then if you uh, go and look at the records of this civilization, what they uh, thought, what they wrote uh, about their own past, uh, then you find uh, mention of even earlier civilizations that stretch back very far into prehistory. And I think that also in the archaeological field, they were just starting to uncover more and more of the evidence of these uh, very ancient civilizations, sites like Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, for instance, they've literally uh, rewritten the paradigm of history. They show 
food that uh, uh, sophisticated cultures existed uh, on uh, our planet already over 10,000 years ago, much earlier than anyone would have believed. And I think that we're barely just scratching the surface uh, of the evidence of other advanced uh, ancient civilizations. And I've heard like there are some archaeological sites that they've now dated back to like as much as 30, 40, 50,000 years ago that we thought were only five, 6,000 years old. And so I'm, I'm kind of really convinced in some ways that, yeah, that civilization is, is much, much, much older than really we think. I'm just curious, before we go to break, what was the initial thing? What was like the first thing that made you kind of scratch your head and go, wait a minute, what's going on here? This doesn't look like the way I've, I've been taught in school. Well, as you, as you mentioned, I'm also very much, I consider myself uh, also a field researcher and uh, an explorer as well. And so it's been uh, my uh, own travels of visiting probably hundreds of archaeological sites uh, throughout the world. Uh, those incredible works and feats of ancient megalithic engineering that really uh, showed me and told me that something was fundamentally wrong with, uh, with the part of history when we were confronted with the evidence of uh, seemingly uh, impossible structures of engineering achievements in the remote past that almost inevitably prompts the question is who were those people uh, what type of civilization what type of technology did they possess right right and and you know one of the biggest mysteries is we still don't know how they built the pyramids in giza right and that's just one example i mean there's sites right. in peru in 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 uh, south america and in europe i mean just all over the world there are sites where it's just like we scratch our head and go how how did they do this we couldn't do it today with our technology so all right uh marco we, it's, we it's hundreds of sites yes hundreds of sites hundreds of sites um and and it, it just to me it just amazes me that it's not sort of more prevalent in the media, like this is really something very shocking when you think about it, of what we've been brought up to believe and what's been considered true for so many generations that now we're finding maybe it's not so true, yet you don't really hear much about it, do you? Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. I think uh, we need to create uh, some of these awareness. So that's uh, also the reason why I decided to write this book uh, to right. uh, bring uh, the evidence of ancient advanced civilizations to uh, a much broader public. I mean, not be aware that uh, like research has been progressing and new evidence is constantly being uncovered for the uh, former existence of ancient advanced civilizations on our planet. Yes, yes. All right, wonderful. It's time for us to take our first break. Um, so when we come back, let's talk a little bit about um, why you're focusing on Atlantis, you know, sort of, uh, uh, what you know, let's give our audience for those who you know may have heard of it but don't really know much of it, like give people an overview of you know the myth of Atlantis, um, since we don't have so many records and and sort of where that that sort of search has taken you over the years. So, uh, everybody, please stay tuned. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour Awakening Humanity. We're talking this hour with Marco Vigado, author of the book The Empires of Atlantis, and we will be right back after these messages. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. 
While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We're speaking this hour with Marco Figado, author of the book, The Empires of Atlantis. Um, so Marco, uh, my understanding is the first sort of real written historical uh, thing we have a mention of Atlantis or some indication was in the writings of Plato, that Plato mentioned Atlantis in, um, I don't remember if it was the Republic or one of his other books. Um, but, but why don't you, for our audience, like give them just a brief overview of, of sort of the myth of Atlantis. And then what have you found over the years that kind of supports this idea of this existence of a civilization known as Atlantis? Well, yes. So, so Plato is certainly the best known uh, source uh, about Atlantis, but it's by no means the first. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Actually, you find the very similar traditions of Atlantis or an ancient lost civilization of the last golden age uh, around the dozens of cultures uh, around the world. You find that in the Egyptian records, the Sumerian records, even across the Atlantic in the ancient Mesoamerica and South America. You find a uh, very, very similar tradition, so many of which even predate uh, the, the time of Plato. Now, going up uh, into the details of uh, Plato's story, because that's a pretty account of Atlantis that most people are familiar with, uh, what uh, Plato uh, described in his two Atlantean dialogues, uh, the Timaeus and the, the Critias, uh, actually, is uh, this uh, idea of uh, a lost, uh, very advanced uh, civilization that fell into decadence. So the story of Atlantis, according to Plato, is 
is really the story of the corruption and the degradation of Atlantean civilization. It was uh, the uh, mightiest, the most powerful and prosperous civilization that the world had ever seen that possessed uh, incredible uh, technology, incredible engineering, uh, architecture. But then they became corrupt. Uh, they fell into materialism uh, and they started a war of conquest. Uh, uh, they tried to uh, subdue the entire world. And that's when uh, divine punishment uh, befell them. The gods decided to punish the uh, Atlanteans that have become corrupted. And uh, as, uh, as the story goes, uh, uh, Atlantis was sunk uh, in the depths of the ocean uh, in a terrible day and night, as, uh, as Plato says. And uh, Plato also says that these events uh, occurred uh, 9,000 years before his time or before the time of his grandfather Solon, which would situate the fall of Atlantis around 9,600 BC by our standards. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. We talk about the Atlantic Ocean all the time, but nobody ever thinks about where does the ner- the name Atlantic comes from. And it comes from this idea of Atlantis, doesn't it? Well, yes. So uh, the, the etymology, the origin of the name of the Atlantic Ocean is... Uh, um, unclear because of the, the very word Atlas or Atlan is not a Greek or an Indo-European word. So the the origin of the word itself uh, is uh, quite uh, quite mysterious. And then you have this very interesting fact that even among the ancient Mesoamerican peoples of Mexico, you have similar traditions of Norwegian. Uh, Original primeval that was called the Aztlan, uh, that was also allegedly located to the east, uh, and that was the land of the gods, so where the gods came from. And very similarly, also in the Vedas, uh, you find uh, one original uh, continent, so one of the seven continents of the earth. You have, like, also from uh, a uh, phonetical point of view, you have like very similar names uh, that seem to designate uh-huh. uh, that same uh, land or same landmass located uh, in uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ocean. Right, right. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, um, myths, stories, you know, in particular, like in the New Age movement, there are a lot of people who come up with ideas about you know what Atlantis was and I'm just curious like you're an an archaeologist like you're a researcher you're somebody who looks at the facts what what have you seen in terms of actual records um in terms of the 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 story in general of Atlantis and what have you seen in terms of actual evidence the, the pointing to its actual existence well, in terms of the records, and that's why I was mentioning that even though Plato probably uh, what is the best known account of Atlantis is by no means the only one or even mm-hmm. the oldest. Actually, uh, Plato never claimed that he had uh, come up with the story of Atlantis himself. He suggested that the story originated in Egypt uh, and that his uh, great-grandfather Solon had picked it up uh, from the Egyptian priest. Now, it's uh, certainly uh-huh. interesting uh, that in Egypt that uh, we have uh, a fascinating temple in Upper Egypt. It's the Temple of Edfu that uh, contains what is considered to be one of the largest and most extensive bodies uh, of texts uh, that have survived from the ancient world. Uh, these are called, well, sections 
collection of those is called the Edfu building tax. It have to do or deal with the mythical foundation, the mythical history of Egypt, and a time when the gods settled into Egypt. And the story that is told in those accounts is remarkably similar to the story given, the story told by Plato. It's the story of a land that was destroyed, that sunk in the ocean, and how survivors from that lost uh, homeland uh, resettled into Egypt uh, thousands and thousands of years before the beginning of the historical dynastic Egyptian civilization. And these became uh, the true uh, founders of civilization in Egypt uh, and uh, in the Middle East, quite possibly also the original builders of uh, such megalithic monuments uh, as uh, um, the pyramids, uh, the Giza complex, uh, many of the other megalithic structures of, uh, of Lebanon. Now, it's certainly in interesting uh, that particularly if you look at uh, Egypt, uh, we have uh, traditions that were preserved on uh, uh, documents, uh, the Edfu building text being one of those, but there are many other historical accounts of prehistoric dynasties like the Turin Papyrus, for instance. They stretch back over 30,000 years. So there are records uh, that date back to uh, pharaonic times uh, that mentioned earlier dynasties of kings, uh, demigods that ruled over Egypt in the very remote uh, uh, past. Now, if you combine the evidence, the textual evidence uh, provided by these documents uh, by various mythical traditions with the archaeological evidence, that's uh, when a picture starts to take shape of that civilization. Now, if we uh, stay in uh, Egypt, uh, uh, many uh, of your listeners will probably be familiar with the theories uh, of our geologist Robert Schock of Boston University, who uh, advocates for a redating uh, of uh, the Great Sphinx uh, of Giza. There is actually evidence mm-hmm. that the body of the Sphinx in particular was subject to thousands of years of uh, rainfall and the water right. erosion that clearly must have predated the uh, alleged time of construction of that monument around 5,000 years ago. Uh, That suggests that the Sphinx uh, and many parts also of the Giza complex uh, may have been uh, carved or constructed at a time when the climate in that part of North Africa was radically different, uh, which was uh, not... uh, um, it was a, the, the last time when you would have had sufficient rainfall to cause that type of erosion was towards the end or immediately after the end of the last ice age. So we're still talking about a time between 7,000 and 10,000 years ago. Again, suggesting uh, the possibility that many of these monuments uh, they were late, they were later uh, adopted, reoccupied by later civilization uh, may have actually been created at a much earlier epoch. Ah, uh, so they weren't actually created by the civilizations they thought they were. They were actually created by much earlier civilizations, but then uh, whatever, they, they got taken over by those civilizations. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, you talk about in your book sort of the origins of, of, of people and, you know, the, the myth or, or, or the usually the accepted thing of, of humans sort of coming out of of Africa and 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 developing in sort of the, the cradle of civilization as it's referred to. What does this evidence, uh, uh, how does it affect what we think about how people actually evolved over the time? Because if, if civilization is mm-hmm. much older, uh, it seems maybe people are much older too. 
right? And I think a number of recent discoveries have also um, put under like increasing uh, scrutiny and put into question this idea of uh, out of Africa or like single origin for uh, anatomically modern humans. So right now we know, for instance, that anatomically modern humans coexisted with uh, Neanderthals, uh, with uh, Denisovans, uh, uh, Homo floresiensis, like a whole lot of uh, human species, like different human species that coexist at the same time. So what they suggest uh, in the book is that the uh, Atlanteans, uh, in addition to being a civilization, possibly an advanced civilization of prehistory, they may have been also their own separate human species, like a human species that evolved separately on a now sunken mid-Atlantic landmass and later mixed and interbred with other uh, human and hominin species uh, to give rise to what we consider today as anatomically modern humans. So it's it's also a different model of uh, evolution and one that stretches back possibly tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. It's also the uh, time scale of human evolution is being constantly uh, pushed back or constantly uncovering uh, new evidence that pushes back in time uh, the origins of anatomically modern humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it constantly seems like things are actually much older than we think they are, that the more and more the, the, we find out the more and more that's uncovered uh, uh, that we are actually much older than we think we are. Um, uh, okay, it's, it's time for us to take our, our next break, but um, let's talk about sort of a, a very important aspect of Atlantis, which you touch upon in the book, which is the apocalypse. Like what happened to Atlantis? I mean, there's this myth of the gods coming down and destroying it, but but as best as we can, maybe we should talk about a little bit of like what actually happened. Um, and maybe there is some kind of explanation for why this advanced ancient civilization disappeared. Um, okay. Perfect. All right. So everybody, please stay tuned. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We do this every Thursday, 12 noon to 1 p.m. Eastern right here on talkradio.nyc. And you can find our video all over Facebook, Facebook Live. We're talking with uh, Marco Vigado, author of the book, The Empires of Atlantis. And we will be right back after these messages. Howdy. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time 
on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. So, Marco, um, in in this myth of Atlantis, you know, the, the, there's this idea that the gods come down and destroy Atlantis. I'm just curious, from an archaeological and a documentary point of view, what have you discovered about the destruction of Atlantis? Mm-hmm. Why did this very advanced, apparently very advanced civilization suddenly disappear seemingly overnight? Well, to begin with, uh, there were, in fact, many cataclysms that they were responsible for the destruction and the downfall of Atlantis. It was not a single cataclysm. And Plato himself, even though he talks about uh, the final destruction, the final sinking of Atlantis, he also suggests that the idea that there were multiple uh, cataclysms, as he says, of, of fire and water, and that uh, the last great flood, the last deluge, they were, remember, was about the last in order of time, but there were many uh, before that. Also, I think that this idea that Atlantis vanished uh, in, a, in a single day and night, uh, I think, uh, is that it's a very simplistic view. Uh, the, the reality is probably that uh, the, the, the fall, but even though the cataclysm might have been very sudden, uh, and uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, Atlantean civilization was not uh, instantly wiped out. Uh, I suggest that uh, in the book that Atlantean civilization actually survived right, for centuries or thousands of years in much more diminished forms in certain parts of the world, like in the Andes Mountains in South America, uh, in certain parts of Mediterranean Europe and the Middle East, the remnants or isolated remnants of Atlantean civilization may have survived until relatively recent times, possibly as late as the European Bronze Age or around 3,000 uh, uh, years ago, possibly even uh, uh, later uh-huh. than that. Now, if we go back to the time that Plato suggests uh, as at the time of the sinking of Atlantis, uh, 9600 BC, uh, that's a very significant date because it seems to coincide with the end uh, of uh, what geologists uh, call uh, the Younger Dryas. There was a, a short uh, mini-ice age, almost a cold spell, that uh, uh, very mysterious in geological terms uh, that lasted around uh, 1500 or 1600 years and both uh, the start and the end uh, of the Younger Dryas were very abrupt to the point that uh, many yeah. scientists and uh, geologists have suggested the possibility that uh, a massive fragmenting comet uh, actually impacted uh, our planet at the beginning of uh, the Younger Dryas uh, which was then followed by a second impact uh, around uh, 9,600 BC. So two cometary impact uh, at a distance of around 1,500 or 1,600 years. Uh, and new evidence is constantly being uncovered uh, uh, to the extent of the destruction that was caused by the impact. Uh, with, uh, uh, we must think of uh, an almost extinction-level event uh, comparable in many ways uh, to the extinction of the dinosaurs uh, 65 million years ago. And that's exactly what we find uh, around that time, we find evidence of mass extinctions of the mammoths, for instance, 
radical mm. climate change over much of northern Europe and North America. All these are uh, huge polar ice caps at some point extended as far south as New York City or Chicago disappear uh, within uh, the time span of just a few generations. So there is evidence, uh, also geological evidence, of a cataclysmic flooding, uh, massive uh, uh, fires uh, as well at that time. Mm. And again, I, I find it a very, at least a very remarkable coincidence uh, that uh, this is uh, exactly, almost exactly to the year, the time frame suggested by Plato for the destruction and the unsinking of Atlantis. Right, right. So that, yeah, I mean, and that literally could would have been something that would have destroyed a whole civilization overnight, a comet hitting or a fragment of a comet hitting, even a small one could have created some some huge explosion and then uh, uh, kind of a, a, a nuclear winter type thing of, of throwing up stuff into the atmosphere. Um, so yeah, so, so there's actually real like like uh, legitimate uh, fe- uh, feasible ways of which uh, uh, a modern ancient uh, civilization could have been destroyed um I- i'm just curious cuz you, you there's one section of your book called the nephilim wars who were the nephilim and what were the wars well, that's, uh, um, I think, a very, very old question, uh, of course. Uh, so in the, in the Bible and book of Genesis, uh, you have this very interesting passage uh, that quite literally suggests that uh, the sons of the gods uh, uh, came unto the daughter of men, and they begot right. children from them, the Nephilim, like these men of renown of, uh, of all. So I think there are two elements to the story. On one hand, uh, there is this idea of the arrival of a much more advanced race, of a more advanced civilization, these sons of the gods that we find across so many different uh, cultures, so many different mythical and religious traditions around the world, which identify with survivors from Atlantis, from the lost civilization that resettled in other mm-hmm. parts of the world. And uh, this uh, idea of uh, interbreeding or hybridization almost uh, seems to suggest that these people did not only bring a more advanced culture and were responsible in a way for these uh, uh, massive surge of construction civilizations we find at sites like Gobekli Tepe, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. But they also uh, mixed and interbred uh, with uh, the local population. And so if we believe uh, that these uh, Atlanteans were, in fact, uh, not only a superior civilization, but also a separate uh, uh, human species, uh, uh, then it's quite possible that their descendants, uh, the Nephilim, would have possessed uh, physical characteristics that were partially inherited from uh, their Atlantean ancestors. So they would have been, in fact, a human-Atlantean hybrids uh, in, uh, in a way, and that these are possibly what is preserved in some of these myths, which, by the way, are not unique to the Hebrew tradition. We find very similar accounts pretty much all over the world. Right, right. And that's one of the things that's so curious is these accounts that span across multiple cultures that are are very far apart. Um, And yeah, when you think about it, if if you had remnants of the super advanced civilization and then you had this this uh, uh, extinction level event and then sort of culture restarting again but then there are some remnants of that advanced civilization those people who were more advanced they would seem like gods to people who were uh, uh, did not uh, come from that that sort of civilization um 
Right, and that's that's the paradox, uh, for instance, of sites like uh, Gobekli Tepe in, uh, in Turkey, which I think is a very fascinating site in this respect, because what you find there really upends the traditional concept of cultural evolution. The most advanced and most sophisticated layers of that site are also the oldest. Uh, and then you see it's as if uh, that civilization forgot, uh, in a way, like the uh, like advanced culture, how to build in stone, how to create this kind of megalithic structure. So civilization had a way to start over again right right you know i was looking through you have some wonderful pictures in the middle of the book and i noticed um just because my, my family is in israel and and um uh, uh i noticed you had some pictures in israel and, and i remembered because uh, i saw it in here that that under the the temple mount in jerusalem um, you can actually go underneath and you can find that there's this what well, they call it a keystone that's this giant stone that they have no idea how it got there but it's like the base of the temple that was built uh, uh, so, so tell me why did you include that and, and why is that like a, a, a hint a clue of something more advanced well there is evidence that many of these uh, very important sacred sites throughout north africa the middle east europe were actually built or rebuilt on top of much earlier foundations so uh, what do you think uh, the, the megalithic evidence from the temple mount of jerusalem uh, which you talk about uh, it's visible in these hotel tunnels and uh, uh, it's called like master course it's immense blocks of stone uh, you have like a single block of stone there is estimated weight over 460 tons and this is a style of megalithic construction that uh, you find in egypt almost identical you find it in lebanon at balbec uh, for instance where you have even like over 1000 ton uh, stone blocks that were employed in uh, in this construction and then you see how these sites were later reoccupied and reused by later civilizations so the same way as at balbec for instance you find this incredible megalithic platform uh, again built with over 1000 ton stone blocks uh, on top of which the romans built uh, what is actually considered to be the largest uh, classical temple in the entire mediterranean world the temple of balbec uh, uh, in the same way i think uh, there is at least a possibility that the Herod's Temple in Jerusalem, uh, this incredible work of ancient architecture and engineering, was actually built on a site that was already sacred uh, mm -hmm. and that may have contained the remnants of even earlier structures. So when you actually compare the architecture of the Herodian period and the Solomonic period uh, as well, you can clearly see a difference in how that may have been erected on top of some much earlier megalithic foundations that already existed at the site that uh, I suggest may date back uh, thousands of years, maybe even to the time of the last ice age. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not only, it, not just the sheer size of the stones, but sometimes just the, how perfectly they're laid and how perfectly they're cut. Like um, there's the site, I forget the name, there's the site in Peru where the stone blocks are cut so perfectly even at perfect right angles um, that it, it sort of defies explanation unless there was a more advanced civilization that was much older, which that actually created those structures. And it's not only that 
course, it's the great size of the blocks, it's the accuracy of uh, the construction. It also certainly hints like the fact that uh, the same uh, uh, metrological system, the same units of measurement were employed at many of these sites, you find like very consistently, which to me again is a very important hint to the fact that the same culture, the same civilization created all these sites. In other words, uh, there's some very controversial evidence from Egypt, uh, from Peru as well, that some advanced tools, uh, possibly even uh, uh, machines were employed uh, in order to cut and raise uh, some of these stone blocks. So there is actually evidence from a number of sites in Egypt of the use of uh, very high-speed drills uh, in order to drill into rocks as hard as granite or basalt. There is a site uh, just a few miles north of Giza called Abu Rawash uh, where there is evidence on blocks of granite of the use of circular saws uh, with a diameter of over 20 feet. Uh, so you have to imagine they, they, they would have used immense machines uh, to cut and the evidence is quite literally written on the stones. You see the signs, like the grooves and the tool marks on these stones that oh, show wow. that advanced machines, advanced technology was used in order to create uh, these structures. And many of these, uh, you mentioned the Giza pyramids, you mentioned uh, many sites in Peru, Tiwanaku in, uh, in Bolivia, they show a level of technology of precision that would be hard to replicate, even with the best tools of today. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. You, I, I remember reading once quite a while ago that um, they found some fossil in, I think it was Siberia, that, that was some kind of stone or um, um, igneous stone or some from volcano, and there was a gear. There was a mm-hmm. metal gear inside, a, a, a manufactured metal gear inside, and the, the, the stone was like, carbon dated to something like 400,000 or I I don't know I I forget whether it was 450,000 years ago or 450 million years ago but it's like some really really ancient old old time like way before any modern sort of thing and you think like how could that be yeah and there is this question that that is generally called uh... Uh, all parts or out-of-place artifacts. These are seemingly technological artifacts that are found in layers, even geological layers that are tens of thousands, in some cases even hundreds of thousands of years old. You have many, many examples of that. One of my favorite ones is a remarkable mechanism from Antikythera in Greece, uh, which uh, contains a set of cogs. It's actually been demonstrated to be probably the first astronomical computer with a calculator built uh-huh. to uh, reproduce uh, the movements of uh, of uh, the planets, of the sun, uh, of the moon. Uh, and uh, uh, that was found in a Greek shipwreck uh, dated to 300 uh, BC. But the technology that uh, uh, that implies a level of scientific and technological advancement is uh, far in advance of anything that would have been available at the time. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, uh, uh, it's time for us to take our, our last break of the show. Um, when we come back, I'd like to talk um, a little bit about the ARX project. And then also about, like, uh, you, as you just mentioned, the sunken boat, like, has there been any evidence uh, underwater in, in the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean Ocean uh, of this sunken civilization? And maybe if we have time, we'll touch upon even the myth of Lemuria, which is supposedly even older than Atlantis. So everybody, please stay tuned. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We're talking this hour with Marco Vigado, author of the book, The Empires of Atlantis. And we will be right back after these messages. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. 
Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Calling all pet lovers. Pet Avengers, assemble! On the Professionals and Animal Lovers show, we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong. It mirrors that bond between pets and their owners. Through this program, we come together to learn, educate, and advocate. Join us live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. Uh, so, Marco, we've been talking a lot about Atlantis and how it, it sunk into the ocean. Have we actually found any evidence in the water of, of an, an ancient civilization? Well, there is a lot of evidence of uh, many submerged cities uh, around the world, many of which may date back uh, to the end of the last ice age, so the supposed time of the sinking of Atlantis. Uh, some of these evidence has been presented by authors like Graham Hancock, uh, for instance, that talks yeah. extensively about these megalithic submerged ruins off the coast of Alexandria in Egypt, for instance, the Gulf of Cambay in India, Yonaguni in Japan. So there are many examples of submerged sites. Now, when it comes to the question of of Atlantis, a sunken landmass in uh, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, there is actually evidence uh, that the region of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is this immense submerged mountain chain in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean, suffered episodes of cataclysmic subsidence during the recent uh, geological time, particularly in the region of the Azores Plateau. Evidence has been found of former riverbeds that uh, uh, extend and run on the ocean floor for hundreds of miles off the coast of São Miguel Island in the Azores, for instance. So uh, we can imagine that some of these mid-Atlantic islands, the Azores in particular, could be quite literally the mountain tops of uh, a now sunken, uh, submerged landmass in the mid-Atlantic Ocean, very much in the same location as suggested by Plato. Uh, 
for uh, Atlantis. So, uh, something, uh, something else that is, uh, uh, of course, like if you, if you think about it, then what is the possibility we'll uncover any any direct evidence of that? Um, I think, uh, of course, like there is uh, there is still the hope uh, that uh, uh, one day we'll actually be able to identify uh, ruins or clearly man-made uh, structures and artifacts uh, from the mid-Atlantic floor. But uh, we also have to think about uh, how, how likely is it that after tens of thousands or after ten thousand years at least. Uh, we'll yeah. be able to find anything uh, with the rate of the deposition of sediments, uh, for instance, the rate of erosion on uh, on the Atlantic floor. We're talking about depths uh, between 2,000 and 3,000 meters, so thousands of feet wow. uh, underwater. So even with the best of the technology available today, it will be extremely hard to recover any type of uh, artifacts. And that's why I think it's even more important that we look for evidence of these ancient civilizations in other parts of the world. I remember the this was a global civilization. It was a global seafaring right. culture. So even though their homeland, uh, these uh, uh, lost continent, lost the landmass uh, uh, called uh, Atlantis, is now uh, vanished. Uh, is now sunken to the depths into the depths of the Atlantic Ocean. We may still be able to find evidence of Atlantean civilization from the lands where Atlantean survivors uh, or Atlantean mm-hmm. colonists uh, resettled uh, in the Middle East uh, in South America. America, in Egypt, uh, North Africa, and truly all, all over the world. And that's why we find all these many megalithic sites uh, pretty much on every continent. Right, right, right. So a couple of years ago, you founded something called the ARX Project. What is that all about? Well, that goes exactly in that direction of uh, trying to uncover some of the evidence of ancient advanced uh, civilizations. So, um, again, I think uh, that uh, uh, if uh, we are ever to find uh, conclusive evidence for the existence of Atlantis, uh, we need to actually go out there and start looking uh, for that in places where it is likely that Atlantean survivors or colonists resettled after the cataclysm in order to restart civilization. And so the objective and the idea behind the the ARX project is to actually uncover some of that uh, evidence. There is a very strong suggestion in many ancient uh, traditions uh, that uh, prior to the fall of Atlantis, uh, various uh, uh, secondary centers of civilization were established in in different parts of the world, uh, even repositories of knowledge were created almost uh, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, time capsules or shelters mm-hmm. uh, to preserve documents and the artifacts uh, from the lost civilization with the idea that the future humanity, these us, uh, would one day rediscover them and uh, bring back, uh, in a way, the civilization and the science of Atlantis. So I think we have a responsibility now with the means mm-hmm provided uh, by modern uh, technology, by modern science, uh, to uh, uncover some of that evidence, uh, to try to find uh, some of those uh, uh, pan capsules. And uh, uh, with with that, uh, uh, bring back uh, some of the science, some of the culture and civilization of Atlantis. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of leads me to sort of my next question. You kind of answered it already a little bit, which is, why should we care about Atlantis today? Why is all this information, how is it relevant to our lives today in this world? Well, it's two things. So on the one hand, I think part of the reason why we're so uh, 
attracted by this topic of lost civilizations of Atlantis, that our civilization is uh, very much walking down the same path. So if you go back to the root of the Atlantis story, it's a story of a, a highly evolved uh, spiritual civilization that became corrupted and fell into materialism. And eventually that's what led it to its, uh, to its downfall. So I see many parallels between our own and our own Western civilization and uh, Atlantis itself. Uh, and second, uh, uh, I do think, uh, and I do believe in the possibility of recovering some of that Atlantean past so that we learn from the past mistakes in the same way as uh, um, during the 15th and 16th century in Europe at the time of the Renaissance, the rediscovery of the heritage of Greece and Rome uh, led to this uh, great flourishing of culture and civilization in pretty much every field from the arts to science. Yeah. Yeah, imagine what the rediscovery of our Atlantean past uh, could bring. Uh, it would be truly a new renaissance, a new uh, golden age uh, almost, mm-hmm. uh, propelled by the rediscovery of much of the science and technology of Atlantis. Yeah, yeah. Um, just really quick, are you familiar with the work of Zachariah Stitchin, who wrote the yes, book of Twelfth yes. Planet? So, so he kind of postulated that this ancient Sumerian civilization and what we refer to as gods were actually aliens. What do you feel is the likelihood of that, or do you, or do you take a very earth-based approach to things? Yeah, I take I take a completely earth-based approach. I find this okay. whole idea of ancient aliens to be entirely entirely unlikely, not based on on facts, on the evidence, all the evidence. I found both the textual evidence, the archaeological evidence, that it really points to an Earth-based civilization, clearly an advanced, an advanced Earth-based civilization. civilization. There is nothing to make me think uh, that uh, um, extraterrestrials or aliens were involved in any way. Okay, okay. Um, real quickly, we only got a minute or two left. What what was Lemuria? Um, because you often hear about Lemuria speaking in, in, in similar conversations as Atlantis. Well, there is this idea, particularly in the esoteric tradition, that Atlantis was not the only uh, lost civilization, it was probably the last uh, in order of time, but other uh, advanced civilizations existed even before Atlantis, one of those being uh, the Muria in the Indian and Pacific Ocean. So that would have existed at the time uh, probably over a million years ago. So we're talking mm-hmm. about uh, like very, very ancient times. And so yeah. even the, the, the possibility of recovering, if, if it's hard to even like uncover some of the evidence of Atlantis, much more closer, it's much closer to us in time than the right. possibility of ever uncovering any evidence of Lemuria. I think it's, uh, uh, it's very, uh, very small. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Marco, I, it's time to draw to a close. I, I could talk to you for hours. I love talking about these topics because I feel there's so much to be learned from them. Um, so your book is The Empires of Atlantis, which I think that empires, multiple, uh, plural, is, is very much on purpose. Um, and you can find this on all the major uh, booksellers, correct? Yes, yes. It's through all the major booksellers around the U.S. As you said, the publisher is uh, in their tradition. It's distributed by someone in Schuster. You can find it in Amazon, all your favorite bookstores. I always encourage you to visit my website. It's marcovigato.com, where you can find more information about the book, my latest research and expeditions around the world. Right. And that's Marco uh, Vigato, M-A-R-C-O-V-I-G-A-T-O.com. Marco, thank you so much for coming on my show today. It was a pleasure to have you on the Conscious Consultant Hour. I wish you much luck in the future. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure.
It's been a pleasure. And if you you have to promise me, if you, you find any great new evidence or make some great breakthrough, you let me know so we can have you back on the show. Okay? I will. I will. You will be the first to know. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. And thank you, my loyal listeners, for tuning in as you do week after week. Uh, I appreciate you all. Without you, there's no show. Um, please stay tuned. Later today, we have Frank Harrison in the show, Frank About Health, and tomorrow, our whole business block of shows from Philanthropy and Focus, Always Friday, and Wise Content Creates Wealth. Next week on my show, I'm bringing back a returning guest, a dear, dear friend of mine and spiritual teacher, G.P. Walsh. I hope you will join us next week for that. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. on edge hey we live in challenging edgy times so let's lean in i'm sandra bargeman the host of the edge of every day which airs each monday at 7 p.m eastern time on talkradio.nyc tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges that's the edge of every day on mondays at 7 p.m eastern time on talkradio.nyc informed about menopause and how it impacts on your life hi i'm pat duckworth women's health strategist and host of the hot women rock radio show empowering women leaders at menopause join me every thursday at 10 a.m eastern time 3 p.m uk time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.